Am I on on this thing? I think I am probably. Sam will give me a nod if I'm not. Great. Uh, great testimony, Dan. Thank you for sharing that. Do just log that. Do log what Dan said, not the second part, though that was amazing. Uh, the first part. We are in a fight. We are in a battle. And actually, sometimes the battle can be about us gathering together. Just log that. You heard it from Dan here this morning because it's something that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks because I think that God is uh, wanting to speak to us about that. But that's not what I'm speaking to this morning. Uh, I'm bringing you bread from Africa because uh, that's where I've been. I've been in Zimbabwe. And to be honest, I've got too much to say. Uh, I'm going to try and condense it down. I'm sorry. Strap yourselves in. Uh, so many stories I can tell, things I'm going to miss out, etc., etc. I'll just, just, just before we start, I'll tell you, I, I did a classic stupid English thing, uh, which you won't be surprised at. Uh, I, I went to the church, and then at the end, we went to a conference put on by the New Frontier Sphere over there called Disciple Nations. It was camping. It was in an open-sided, thatched roof, big building, which is great when it's hot. And the first day, it was boiling there. It was baking. And I'm doing the typical, you know, Englishman, oh, keep out of the sun. It's too hot. And my friends are laughing at me, you know, blah, blah, blah. The following morning, I wake up, and it's freezing. It's raining. It's like England on a bad day. It's absolutely terrible. At which point I'm walking around saying, praise God. God's bought the English weather for the stupid Englishman, which we all thought was very funny until we realized that actually this weather's in. It's in for the whole day. And there are one or two photos, one that might come up. Uh, next one, Toby, thanks. So this is people in the main meeting in blankets and duvets because it's freezing and the wind is blowing through. Next one, this is Joy going to the meeting in her duvet. So uh, yeah, uh, I apologized and uh, asked for their forgiveness. Thank you for praying for me, those of you who did. The jet lag was fine. It took 26 hours of travel to get back. And I really, I don't do jet lag very well. I thought it was going to bash me. It didn't. So I can only take it that that was your prayers. Uh, so that wasn't too bad. So thank you very much. Okay, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this thing, see if we can get it done. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we want to thank you that you are the king of the nations, that you are the king of the nations, and that any who put their trust in you, death has no sting, because our eternal destiny is in your hand. So you really are the hope for the nations, not just now but more importantly, throughout eternity. So Lord, I thank you for that. And I pray this morning that you would help me to share my experiences uh, from Zimbabwe. And I pray that you would help all of us to hear the stories. They may be places and people that we don't know, but Holy Spirit, would you enable us to take away something that would encourage us in our faith. So I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so if you're, don't, if you're here but you don't uh, you know, normally come, we would normally take a passage of the Bible and explain it. But as I've done this uh, two-week trip to Zimbabwe this morning, we're doing it slightly different. We're going to look at this trip. I hope there's something here for you. I'm going to break it down into three sections. The first section is an update on Zimbabwe as a nation. The second section is going to be about the local church, River of Life, Westgate, that we here have been partnering with for about 17, 18 years. And the third section is going to be about the Zimbabwe sphere called Disciple Nations, the New Frontier Sphere, and what they're doing and the conference that I went to 
at the end of my trip. Is that okay? And I'm going to tell you a story at the end which will blow your socks off if you manage to stay awake through the rest of it. So I just say there is a story coming that is amazing, right up there with Noah and the ark, in my opinion. Zimbabwe, that's got you interested, isn't it? Wow, that's like a, that's like a talk technique there. I didn't even know it. I'm going to write a book about that. Uh, Zimbabwe, the state of the nation, okay, bread basket to basket case. That's how I would put it. Bread basket used to feed Africa to basket case. Just when I thought the situation couldn't get worse in Zim, the situation has got worse. Over the times that I've been over the last 12 years, five or six times, I've been there when there has been money but no food to buy. I've been there when there has been food but no money to pay for it. This time I went, there was money and there was food, but it was in the back of the store, not able to be sold because the shopkeeper wasn't sure that he could sell it or she could sell it and still make a profit. Right? Just get your head around that one. Money but no food, food but no money. Now there is food out the back, money in people's pockets, and the two can't connect. Let me explain why. About two years ago, the Zimbabwe government decided to stop using US dollars, and they decided they would begin to print what they call bond notes, which is really them printing Zim dollars, one, five, ten Zim dollars. And it was supposed to be a bond because the idea was that at any time you could give your Zim dollars to the government and they would give you the same in US dollars. So that's why they called it a bond note. But in reality, they were just printing their own currency like monopoly money. And so the shops are only legally allowed to sell things at one price. But that's okay because a Zim dollar is the same as a US dollar. And the Zimbabweans, those who have jobs, because 90% don't, but the 10% that do... It's okay, they're paid in Zim dollars, but that's okay because their Zim dollar is the same as the US dollar. Except, of course, in the real world, they aren't. Because the Zim dollar is only worth anything to anyone in Zim. They're worthless to anybody outside of Zimbabwe. But the problem there is that in a country where you have to import just about everything, including food, that's a real problem. Because the people that you import from don't want Zimbabwe dollars. They want US dollars. So let's just take the supermarkets as an example. They basically have to import everything from outside, mainly from suppliers in South Africa. And the supermarkets have to pay their suppliers in US dollars. But then they have to set their prices in Zim dollars because the government says they have to. So people go to the supermarket and they pay in Zim dollars and the supermarkets end up with whole loads of Zim dollars. But then they go to the government and say, here's my 10,000 Zim dollars. Please give me 10,000 US dollars so that I can pay my supplier and get some more food in and we'll have food on the shelves. And everything works fine. All the time, the government is able to exchange one Zim dollar for one US dollar. Are you with me so far? Everything is fine until the government run out of US dollars because you can't print those. You can press the photocopier and print Zim dollars, but you can't do that with US dollars. The US government, funnily enough, won't allow you to. And the government has run out of US dollars. The government has no more. They've got nothing else to sell, nothing else to pawn, nothing else. No one else will lend money. And so recently, like just a few weeks ago, 
the government said to the supermarket, uh, no, we're not going to exchange your Zim dollars for US dollars. So guess what the supermarkets did? They said, we're not going to sell the produce then. If you're not going to change, if you're not going to exchange our Zim dollars, what's the point in our selling our produce? Because we've got to pay our supplier in US dollars. We're going to go bankrupt. So therefore, we're not going to sell any food. We're not going to sell any petrol. We're not going to sell anything at all. This caused panic. Panic among the people. Panic among in the nation. The government said, oh, this is panic. What are we going to do? I know. Let's print a whole more load of Zim dollars and go out onto the black market, the free market, and buy up all the US dollars that are in circulation in Zimbabwe. Guess what that did? That caused the, the, the rate not to go from 1 to 1, 2 to 1, 3 to 1, but 6 to 1, 7 to 1, 8 to 1, because they had to give so many Zim dollars to get a few US dollars. Guess what that did? That caused panic and confusion. Because now the, the, the stores couldn't sell their produce. They didn't know what price do we sell things for. If I sell it for three Zim dollars, that might actually only be worth nothing. It, it, the rate might be seven Zim dollars, ten Zim dollars tomorrow on the free market. It meant that shops couldn't sell anything and know that they were going to get enough Zim dollars back that if the government didn't give them US dollars, they would still be able to somehow make a profit. The whole market just went into freefall. The government's response, let's put a 2% tax on everything to raise more US dollars. Well, guess what that did? Absolutely nothing. And so suddenly, shops stopped selling their produce. Suddenly, the things that the shops were selling went up as shopkeepers were unsure of how much they had to sell things for in Zim dollars to be able to make a profit. In times like that, you just protect stock by not selling it. It caused panic. Massive queues at the supermarket. Massive queues at the petrol station. People bought whatever they could. Because in an African market, you don't do your monthly shop and stick it in a supermarket. It's still a very much market economy. You go and buy something for the next couple of days. And so people were queuing for hours to get a loaf of bread hours to get some vegetable oil. And it reminded the people of what things were like a few years ago in hyperinflation. It took them back to that point where they couldn't get food and they couldn't get petrol and they couldn't get bread. And so there was panic and this sense of, oh my goodness, are we going back to how things were? For people in business, it's a nightmare. We went and bought a set of swimming goggles for one of Tongai's boys it cost us 38 US dollars. They were the cheapest swimming goggles that we could find. They only sold two. $38. We asked the guy, how much in Zim dollars? Legally, he should have said $38. He said $175. So night, they don't know how much to sell anything for. Shopkeepers are worried that the, that the government will simply say at some stage, we will not give you any US dollars for your Zim dollars. And and, and all their money, in a sense, will be worthless overnight. For the government, it's a nightmare because the whole thing rests on them being able to exchange US dollars for Zim dollars. And so the government owes 80 million US dollars to, to various airlines. They owe more to power companies. They owe, so they owe everywhere, and everyone they owe is demanding US dollars, and they haven't got any 
And by draining the US dollars out of the Zimbabwe market, they are forcing their own currency to go sky high. They are literally a country which has basically maxed out the credit card, robbed Peter to pay Paul, and now there is nothing, and the people that they owe money to are starting to say, give us our money or we will stop supplying you. For the average Zimbabwean, it's a nightmare because if you are paid, you're paid in Zim dollars. And let's just say, for example, at the start of this year, a bag of rice cost you one Zim dollar. The reality is now in the shop, it will either be four Zim dollars, six Zim dollars, seven Zim dollars, depending on what the shopkeeper puts the price as. But your wages are still exactly the same. Your wages haven't gone up because you've got a contract that says you'll be paid this amount of Zim dollars. On the old days of hyperinflation, as wages went up, prices went up, the two went up. You ended up going around with barrow loads of watches of cash to pray for something, but at least the two went up together. On this system, your wages stay the same, but the price of everything, staple foods, vegetables, rice, meat, is just gone up and up two times, three times, four times, five times, seven times as much. That is the effect on the average Zimbabwean. The day before we left for this conference, Tongai queued for six hours for a tank of diesel. He tried to get diesel all week. There was no diesel in, Zim in Harare that he could find. This is a capital city, which, by the way, is the sixth least livable capital city in the world, Harare. Sixth least livable. I can understand why when you see it like this. So Tongai went out on the Thursday to drive around. He'd heard that there might be a tanker coming in from one of his friends on WhatsApp because they're all watching around the city. And when the tanker comes in from out of town, it suddenly forms a whole convoy of cars behind it, wondering whether it's got petrol or diesel and where's it going to stop. When it finally stops, they are, oh, petrol, diesel, petrol, diesel. This one happened to be diesel, praise God. So Tongai was following it through the streets of Harare. It stopped at the petrol station. It's diesel. He gets on the WhatsApp. Everyone gets on the WhatsApp. There's diesel here. There's diesel here. Thousands flood. Honestly, flood to the petrol station. There's queues and there's people driving everywhere. The roads become gridlocked. He was following the tanker, and it still took him six hours to get to us because everyone's just cutting in and pushing. How there are not riots, I do not know. In this country, most countries, there will be riots. There is not. One guy in the church, Winston, Tonga WhatsApped him. He was waiting at another petrol queue. He zipped in his car, got around there, waited for another three hours, was one car away from getting filled up, and they ran out. So this is how it is, six hours just waiting in a petrol queue in the African sun. Can't keep the air conditioning running because you're using petrol or diesel. So it really is difficult times. I got a front page of the business paper. I forgot to bring it, but I've got it, which basically just talks about this whole system. We, 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 it, it just can't go on. So I think that somehow the Zimbabwe financial monetary system is about to crash again. Don't know what that will leave people into. So that's the situation that I flew into. So it was great to be there at that time and be able to understand and help out, etc. So if you're going to pray, please pray for Zimbabwe. Uh, I suspect they'll go back to a US dollar-based system. That's also terrible for your average Zimbabwe person because if you don't have access to US dollars, your money's worthless, your pension's worthless, your savings worthless, everything you have is worthless. That re it really is uh, just terrible, terrible, terrible. That's the bad news. And it is bad news. It is. You can't dress it up. It is bad news. Can't sugar soap it. It's not England. 
it's not the West. It's, it's Africa. <laughs> it's bad. It's bad. And yet, the church is doing some amazing things. The church is genuinely doing some amazing things. I, I want you to understand, it's a terrible, terrible situation, and yet the church is being a light and giving hope in that nation. Let me maybe explain a little bit why. Could you show the next couple of um, photos for us, Toby? So um, for those you who don't know, we have had a friendship with a church in Harare called River of Life Westgate. It's a 99.9% uh, black, Shona-speaking, agriculturally-based... No, I think we need the lights on, Matt, otherwise I won't be able to see. Sorry, mate. <coughs> Thanks. So... Um, based community on the western side of Harare, and we've been building a friendship, partnering the gospel with them for the last 15, 17 years. Numbers of us have visited. Charlie and Ashley spent six months there uh, a few years ago. So for anyone newer to King's Church, you've got to understand this is a relationship that we have been building over years, nearly two decades, because that's what God told us to do. We can't reach every nation. We can't support every church but we can reach and support the ones that God directs us to, and he directed us to this church, and so we support them, pray for them, give to them, and build a relationship with them, trusting that God will do the same with other churches. The first thing to say is that, generally speaking, Westgate, the church uh, site, is turning more into an agricultural facility rather than a wedding-type facility. They run church there, but I think when I've come back in the past, I've probably spoken to you about the fact that they uh, make a great wedding facility. See, the site at Westgate that they have is large, but the church giving only covers a fifth of their overall running costs. And so for years, they've received a lot of income from a charity called Foundations for Farming that farmed the land and did training. And then they made up the rest of their income by doing weddings because they've got nice grounds. But over the last couple of years, those two sources of incomes have gone. The foundations for farming has moved to a farm. And guess what? In this economy, no one is spending money getting married uh, as they were. So they haven't had any wedding bookings, I think, for a year now. And so what they're transitioning to is to focus on what is described as contract or small-scale farming. So they're going to run the church on a Sunday morning and have the church office there but they're going to use their buildings and facilities to try and go down a more agricultural route in terms of contract or small-scale farming. We can turn this off now, so thanks. And the opportunities that come from that and a place where people can be supplied and a place where people can be trained, and then as they build relationships, they want to share the gospel with them. So I don't know if many of you understand about contract or small-scale farming, I had no idea. Apologies if you do, but let me just try and quickly explain the concept to you. Let me use chickens as an example, okay? Not egg layers, but chickens. It takes basically two months for a chicken to go from basically born to kind of ending up on KFC, right? That's kind of how it works, right? Uh, chickens, that's what we're talking about. And there are people in the community who are able to turn part of their garden or maybe some land they have access to into a chicken house. All they need is some wood, and some, wood some fences, something for feeding trough. 
And actually, you don't need acres of space to do a thousand chickens. You could probably do it in, you know, I don't know, maybe a tennis court size, couple of tennis court size bits of land. You can build a kind of chicken house and raise chickens. And the way that it works is that the supplier sells you the, the thousand chickens, a day old, somewhere between one and three days old, and the feed, and you then look after the chicken, and then the supplier comes along six weeks later and buys the chickens off you at a prearranged price based on weight, okay? And you then get your money, in a sense, for raising the chickens. So you've got to protect them, you've got to look after them, you've got to take care of them. The supplier comes, weighs the chickens, takes them, gives you the money. It means the local farmer doesn't have the logistical nightmare of trying to get their chickens to market or finding the right buyer who's going to pay at a fair price. All that is agreed in advance with a supplier. You can just concentrate on raising the chickens. And the supplier is happy because they have got all these chickens out being ready. They know when their due date is coming up. So the supplier just needs to work out the marketing and the transport and where they're going to be sold. They've got this whole network of thousands of chickens, 30, 40, 50,000 chickens spread around. And they've just got to work out. They're going to swoop around, pick up these chickens, these chickens, these chickens, and then sell them to this supermarket or this wholesaler. And so both work together. By working together and not trying to rip each other off, they can actually both succeed and both make a profit. In fact, one only makes a profit if the other one makes a profit. Are you with me? If the supplier squeezes the contract farmers, they won't sell to them. The whole thing won't work. If the contract farmer doesn't look after the chickens, then the supplier is only going to give them less money because it's not worth so much, and it doesn't work. But if they work together, they can both make a profit and share from it. Do, do, do you understand the principle? It's a method of farming that doesn't require big central farms with 20,000 chickens. It doesn't require thousands of dollars of capital investment. It's actually small-scale farmers, in essence, working together more on a cooperative basis, which we have had in this country previously. And the reality is that you can start people small-scale with 200, 300, 400 chickens, and then they can even give you the money for the initial chickens out of the profit, still have enough to live on, and then as you build up trust and as they build up profit, you can then begin to sell the chickens and sell the feed to them. But you can start off small-scale, let them expand it until they have some profit and they can actually buy it. And I'm not just talking about someone doing a few chickens to make a few quid. In Zimbabwe, a fully qualified teacher lives on about $200 a month. That, that's, kind of, that's a good wage in Zimbabwe. This way of doing, for example, chickens, somebody, if they look after 1,000 chickens over a six-week cycle, can earn 250 to 300 Zim dollars. So this is a full wage as good as most others in the nation. And so when people start to see individuals doing this kind of farming, whole communities are sitting up and taking interest. And there is a guy on the Disciple Nation's core team called Peter Cunningham that I'll talk about later, and he is a national supplier. 
of chickens and eggs and vegetables and nuts, etc., etc. And so he is able to supply everything that the contract farmers are able to produce. It's a way that actually they can feed the nation, and it's a way that individual farmers can look after themselves. And Westgate as a church is getting more and more involved in this kind of project because they see that it's a way that people that live around the site can come, get the chickens, or get the inputs, get the seeds. Uh, They can sell it to them, or they can even give it to them on a small scale. And as they build up profit, they can then buy them as it goes on. They can come to the Westgate site, get what they need, and it's easier, they found, to share the gospel off the back of that because they're building ongoing relationships and serving the community than doing the wedding. Do you see that? Now, I know it's taken a bit of time to explain that, but in a nation with somewhere between 90 and 94% unemployment, if you can offer people the ability to farm and create enough wealth to live off with dignity and not handouts, that's a massive thing. That's a massive thing. We don't, under, we, don't, we, don't, we don't get it. I wouldn't have got it unless I'd been there. But when you go and you see, oh, this is not just, this is not just about selling chickens and making money to buy a Lamborghini. This is about you being able to raise chickens or grow marrows or grow pecan nuts, and you can actually make a living for you and your family using what you have here. That's massive. That changes people's lives. So one of the elders at the church called Clapperton, he runs this chicken and feed business. It's the first one they've started from the Westgate site. It used to be a tuck shop telling, selling fizzy pop and crisps. He now sells boxes of day-old chickens and feed. It's a bit strange to us, but that's what he is doing. And he handles, I think it's about 6,000 chickens over a month. And he's now got a whole network of small-scale farmers who have got chickens house in their back gardens, and he supplies them with the chickens. They come back three times over the six weeks to get the feed. He's building relationships with them, and they then sell it off to the supplier and make a profit and make a living. And so that is enabling Clapperton to support himself. He works for it three days a week, and in the other two days, he travels to the rural areas of Zimbabwe training Christian pastors pastors whom nobody else goes to see. He's got five churches six hours away in this area where a few years ago they took some farming, planted some churches. It's right in the back of beyond. And Clapperton goes once a month, six hours, hitchhiking and on a bus and however else he can get there to spend four days with them, teaching them the basics of the Christian faith. Because these six churches People in there have no education, no understanding, and yet somehow wonderfully God has saved them. But Clapperton is able to support himself three days a week by selling chickens from the Westgate site on this contract farming, enabling him two days a week to go and serve his church. It is quite amazing. Tongai is doing a similar thing with some training. He's looking at doing some layers. They're looking at getting 2,000, the ability to produce 2,000 eggs Uh, a day, 2,000 eggs a day uh, at the site. And there's a young lad who started off at Crossover, which is the school that they run on the site, which I just haven't got time to tell you about this morning, so I'm going to give up, and I'm sorry. If you're interested in Crossover, the school, come and talk to me. 
I have some stories to tell you. But the school that they run called Crossover, this lad went there because there was no other education for him. At the age of 18, he went to a college called Ebenezer, which was on the same farm that I went to stay at for this conference. At Ebenezer, for two years, he learned how to do agriculture, and his favorite thing was layers, chickens that lay eggs. And now he's just about to go back to the Westgate site where Crossover is and the church is, and they're going to set him up with 2,000 layers, and he's going to sell it back to the supplier. And once he's got the business going, he's then going to offer local people <coughs> that they can come and buy or have 100 chickens at a time, set up their own business. He'll buy the eggs back from them. They'll sell them through the Christian supplier, and he hopes to have a whole network of people who are making eggs, looking after layers that look after eggs. And the center for this is the church site. That's where people come to get them. That's where people come to get trained. That's where people come to get their chickens and get their feed. So things are changing in terms of Westgate as a site, but it is very exciting because I think it's achievable and sustainable in the longer term as long as the whole economy does not completely implode. So that's Westgate. Man, are you still with me? Okay. Crossover, I can't even talk to you about, but it's great. They got nearly 100 kids there, and, uh, and the curriculum is going fantastically well, and they've just had an opportunity possibly to get their curriculum and way of teaching spread out across the whole of Zimbabwe, which would be really exciting, but I haven't got time to tell you about it. Anyway, that's uh, Westgate. That's the church. They're doing well. They're doing amazingly well. They're doing amazingly well. 90 to 94% unemployment. Kind of hopelessness all around. Nothing in the shops, no petrol, no diesel, no hope. And here's a church which is still deciding God is going to make a way for us to serve this community. It is so impressive. It makes me feel so spoiled as a Western Christian. I just want to say that. They say, oh, thanks so much for coming. It means so much to us. <coughs> Honestly, I just want to stand there and cry. It is amazing. Okay, let me move on. I told you I had a story. I'm going to tell you a story. It's 27 minutes. I better carry on. We, I spent four, five, six days with Tonga and joined the church at Westgate, and then we headed off to the Disciple Nations, which is the new frontier, New Frontier Sphere, which covers that part of the world, at this event called Megavision. And it's kind of their Ashburnham equivalent event. It's normally in Harare, but they moved it down to Bulawayo because they wanted to make it easier for the churches in Bulawayo. So we took an eight-hour bumpy car ride from Harare to Bulawayo. Tonga and Joy in the front, me and Joe in the back, Isaac uh, and Shane in the boot of the flatbed. I think we might have a picture of them here. There they are. This is the back of a flatbed van with their two sons laying on a mattress in the back <laughs> with a canopy over the top to stop them from bouncing out. I don't think our English highway code would have had it at all. We went to a... That's fine, thanks, Toby. We went to a campsite called Shalom, which is on a farm, which is owned by the Cunningham family. Peter Cunningham runs the farm. He's also the businessman. He's also on the apostolic core team of Disciple Nations. So he's a guy who is, is uh, 
doing some amazing things. We went to this campsite. Uh, it normally has about 100 people on it at a youth, youth type weekends away. Bless you. We had 350 to 400 people on site. That did push things. People kind of camped where they wanted. There were some dormitories. There were some marquees, boys, girls, matting on the floor, sleep where you want. The hot water was heated up uh, with like a tower thing on legs that had like an open fire heating the water, which was fine until one day I walked past and a log fell from about 25 feet, burning straight onto the floor. This is not England, right? They have a generator. It goes on for certain hours and then goes off for the rest. And you just have to get your water and showers when you can. So this was kind of really the back of nowhere. Big, large thatch building with open sides, a PA projector that was rigged on like a plank. And so because the sides were open and the weather was bad, the projector swung like that, which means the words came in and out of focus <laughs> and then suddenly did that and did that. I'm just painting a picture for you. People like that picture were there. The second day, there was duvets, blankets, coats laid across because the wind was blowing through. Uh, there we go. At the conference, there were folk from Zimbabwe, <coughs> five pastors from the very rural areas who connect with Westgate, the guys that Clapperton serves. There was a group from Malawi who look after about 50 churches in that country. There was a group from Mozambique. There was a guy from Zambia who looks after about 60 churches there. There was a couple of speakers, uh, Phil Moore from Newground went, and a guy called Umbanisi, who was a doctor, originally from Bulawayo, but now planting a church with New Frontiers in Nairobi. And the conference was a great mix of fun, worship, preaching, relational stuff, exactly what you was expect. But the highlight for me was that on this particular farm, they have a campsite, they also have a working farm, and the working farm is worked by students from a place called Ebenezer College. And Ebenezer College is run by a different member of the Cunningham family. I'll maybe just show you a couple on, Toby, maybe. A photo. Maybe it'll come up. Maybe it won't. The crop one, if it's there, mate. That's Phil, that's, Phil, that's Phil Moore, for those who know him. We forgot our caps. And Phil had nothing, and he was standing outside, so he put a, a bag on his head. So that's Phil Moore with a bag on his head. That's how hot it was. After 10 minutes, I'll put anything on my head. What do I care? Those are just some of the crops, the farm at Ebenezer. It was uh, on this farm, the Ebenezer. Thanks, Toby, that's fine. So Ebenezer College currently has about 130 students aged 18 to 23. Most of them know nothing about agriculture when they come, and they come for two years, and they live on site, and they spend the first three months focusing on character. They don't do anything to do with farming. Uh, they just do character because they want to see whether they will work hard, whether they'll honor God, whether they'll be honest. They teach them character. And then for the rest of the two years, they teach them a different form of farming. I think it's cattle and livestock, uh, uh, farm animals like chickens, vegetables and other things, what you grow in the ground, and then I think layers. I think those were the four areas that they look at. And the students actually run the farm. They actually run the farm, and the farm sells via Peter Cunningham Supply Company for real money. And that real money, the profit, goes to pay the students' fees, and they put money aside for them 
so that when they graduate, they'll have a fund of money that they can either set themselves up wherever they're going to go and work on another farm, or they can use it to seed fund setting up their own agricultural business. In a country with over 90% unemployment, currently 80% of their students are in full-time employment or running their own business that sustains them. So people in the country are starting to sit up and take note, like the agricultural minister and the finance minister who have been, because they can't work out how do you get so many of your students employed. But let me tell you the story of the dam. Could you show this dam photo, Toby? Now, I don't know how big that is, but it's a proper big dam, right? If I'm standing here, the edge of the dam is over by those trees, right? It's a big dam. I know it doesn't look like it's my eye, but it's a big dam, massive dam, right the way around. Sometime in the 90s, early 2000s, a guy called David Cunningham, who's a white Zimbabwean, inherited this land, this farm, from his wife's father. David wasn't a farmer, he was a Christian Union guy. But he moved to the farm with his children. Now, David was in his 60s, his kids were in their 30s, and his son, Peter, took over the farm, and his daughter, Renee, decided to set up Ebenezer College. So this is a kind of Christian family enterprise that they're on. For years, the farm had just been used to look after a few hundred head of cattle because it's dry and there's not much water there, and a few hundred cattle was all that David's wife's father thought could be sustained on this farm. And so they moved there as a family to live there. And in 2006, Peter Cunningham, David's son, who's kind of running this cattle farm, during a quiet time, felt God say to him, build a dam on the farm. There was a very small river, what we would call a stream, that ran through the farm. It flowed continually for about three months a year, and the rest of the time it was on-off, depending on whether there was enough rain. So Peter sat there. They're not growing any arable produce on the farm, so they don't need a river or a dam. They didn't have any plans to create an arable farm. The political situation in Zimbabwe at the time was that every white farm was being taken and nationalized. They didn't have the money to build a dam, because a dam like that cost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Zim dollars. So Peter Cunningham's got a problem, because he feels clearly God has told him to build a dam, but he can't see any reason why he should build a dam. I wonder if any of us ever feel that kind of situation, ever. This is his, but he calls a Christian friend who's a builder, who he knows, who has built dams back in the day, because not too many dams have been built in the last 20 years in Zimbabwe. He calls him and tells him the story. And his friend says to him, after about 10, 15 minutes of standing there quietly in prayer, if God's told you to build the dam, we better build the dam. Peter says, I haven't got the money to pay you. His friend says, I'll build the dam, and when God gives you the money, you give it to me. So Peter says, okay, but you've got to understand, I haven't got the money. He says, okay, it's not a problem, God's got the money. So he begins to move the earth to build this whopping great dam, right? The, at the time, there was only one person authorized by the government to do the drawings plan survey weight ratio for dams in Zimbabwe. His name was Bill. He was a Christian. He was in his 80s. 
because no one had been building dams for about 20 years previously because of all the problems uh, in the country. He was the last one left. And uh, so Peter got hold of him and brought him down to the site, told him the story, walked him to where the stream went and where the builder thought the dam should go. And this guy, Bill, stood there and just wept. When Peter asked him, why are you weeping? He said, because my wife died a few years ago, and I've been asking God, why can't I follow her and be with her and Jesus? And God said to me, you have one more dam to build. And he said, as I stand here now, this is the dam. I'll, build, I'll, I'll, draw, I'll draw up the plans for you. So he goes away and starts to draw up the plans in Harare. Meanwhile, the builder, being a kind of impetuous guy, as you've maybe picked up, he starts to get his diggers in there, moving all the earth, right? In preparation. So word gets out in the area that the Cunninghams are building a dam on their farm. Let me just get my notes so I don't lose you where we are. So the builder starts to prepare, starts to move the stuff. And so word gets out locally. But Bill hasn't yet got his drawings completed. He hasn't been to the Minister of Agriculture and got the permit. So Peter phones him up. You've got to go to Harare, go to the minister. We, we need this permit because the local officer's come down and he's telling us that we can't you know, do any more until we get the permit. So Bill goes to the Minister of Agriculture, speaks to the secretary, says, 2006, says, I want a permission to build this dam. I've done the pictures, I've done the drawings, I've done the weight ratio. And the secretary says, well, you can't do it. All the farms are being nationalized. They're all being taken. All the white farmers are being taken. So he leaves the office, goes down the stairs, bursts into tears, says to God, God, this can't be. I thought we were going to build this dam. Then I can go and be with Jesus and my wife. When he was halfway down the stairs, Bill felt God say to him, go back and ask the secretary to physically look at the list of farms. And uh, so that's what Bill did. He went back in to see the secretary and he asked him to get out the uh, actual sheets of paper and to go through them. And the guy got out the sheets of paper that had all the farms listed. And as he looked down next to the uh, names of the farms, there was a tick to state that that one was going to be nationalised, that one was going to be nationalised, that one was going to be nationalised. The whole list on that page, every farm was ticked except when they got to near the bottom where the uh, particular Cunningham's farm was, they found to their amazement that that farm had not been marked for nationalisation. It looked like it had been, but then somebody had changed their mind. And so the secretary said, well, that's okay. If it's not on the list to be nationalised, then I can issue you the permit. The minister will stamp it, sign it, whatever. And so permission was given to build the dam. Sometime later, they found out that there was a, a local uh, ZANU PF bigwig who had his eye on the farm. And when he heard that they were building a dam, he got the listing on the farm changed so that they could build the dam because he reckoned that the farm would be worth more with a dam having been built on it when he tried to take it by force, which he did a few years later, but the local community stopped him from taking it from the Cunninghams. But that's another story that we haven't got time to go into this morning. But so the, the builder built the dam, 
Peter once along the uh, the, the construction journey asked uh, the builder how much he owed a running kind of check and the guy said that he owed $300,000. Peter said he didn't have it. The guy said, well, that's God's problem, not your problem. So when he gives it to you, you give it to me. And uh, sure enough, when God did give it to Peter, he gave it on to the builder. And finally the dam was finished and five days later Bill died and went to be with Jesus and with his wife and it's that water today that enables conferences and youth events to happen on that farm site it's that water that enables hundreds of students each year to learn about agriculture and how to run a farm uh, for real genuine profit on godly principles it enables Peter to run uh, one of the largest chicken and contract farming businesses in Zimbabwe that literally enables hundreds of farmers to earn a living it's a story that reminds me of Noah God told him to build the boat when it wasn't even raining God told Peter to build a dam when he wasn't even farming in terms of prayer for Zimbabwe well three things you could pray for any of the above any of the above things that I've spoken about are worth time praying into second one is actually pray for the government and the leadership but don't change don't pray for a change uh, just changing one leader for another leader doesn't work they've done that it hasn't really made much difference but pray that there would be a turning back to God from the leadership, from the government, from the nation in general. And tied into that, thirdly, pray that the church there might be like Joseph, who so impressed and blessed and served Pharaoh through his relationship with God, that eventually he was put in charge of the nation. And from that position, Joseph was able to bless the nation and bless the people of God. The church in Zimbabwe wants to be such a place of God's favour and blessing that the government at some stage turn and can see that the church is completely different than the rest of the nation, is able to produce when the rest of the nation is not able to produce and maybe by the grace of God will begin to look to the church more and more to lead that nation out of the uh, hole that it's got itself into and under the grace of God and by the grace of God uh, back to being a fruitful just nation. So those are things that you can pray for for Zimbabwe.